keeping ourselves under the word of God as spoken through the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, I trust that the Lord has been speaking to your heart through his word. We're approaching the end of that book in the last section, which we're going to look at today and next Sunday. Chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel. And actually, this is a very difficult section. Many people, as they begin to read it, uh, soon begin to skim and then to skip as they're reading through the Bible. But I think the Lord has uh, much to teach us through his word. All scripture is inspired by God. I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 40 and then skip over to read the first part of chapter 43. Ezekiel chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounded, surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which uh, was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Then he went to the gate facing east. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was one rod deep. The alcoves for the guards were one rod long and one rod wide. And the projecting walls between the alcoves were five cubits thick. And the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one rod deep. Well, he goes on for two and a half chapters just like this, sort of describing architectural drawings. Then we move to chapter 43, verse one. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost next beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution, the lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. 
Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan. And if they are the shame, uh, they are ashamed of all they have done. Make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. The people that the prophet Ezekiel addressed were in a pretty miserable state. Uh, they'd been taken some 800 miles from their homeland to a uh, makeshift refugee camp in Babylon. Their homes had been demolished, their families had been devastated, and finally the center of their national life, the city of Jerusalem, and the holy temple of God had been totally destroyed, burned to the ground. And the temple, you see, was the core of their identity as a people. It represented what was distinctive about them, that the Lord Yahweh, their God, dwelt in their midst. That temple declared that they were his people and he was their God, at least That's what they thought. But now it was all gone. Everything was gone. And they were lost as exiles in a foreign land. Ezekiel was commissioned by God to address these people. And they needed to hear two things. First, they needed a word of truth. They needed to know the truth about their God, that he was not weak. He was not impotent. He was not unable to defend Israel against attack. He'd he'd not been defeated by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Not at all. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was his servant, his instrument to execute his judgment on his people. The truth is, God is holy. And he had entered into a covenant relationship with Israel like a marriage And that covenant called for exclusive allegiance. But the Israelites had had played the harlot, chasing after other gods, engaging in idolatry of all sorts, which resulted in, in every manner of social evil among them. The Lord could take it no longer. You see, Israel was meant to display the glorious character of God to the nations. But instead, they were profaning his reputation by their sin. And so for the sake of his name, the Lord had to act. And he did. And these people needed to know that their exile was his doing. They were under his judgment. They were without excuse. That was the truth that they needed to hear. And Ezekiel gave it to them in no uncertain terms. But that was not the end of the story. Far from it. You see, this holy God of Israel was also a merciful God. And he had purposed to redeem a people for himself. And beginning with Abraham and through Abraham, he would bring blessing to the nations. And he would not turn back on that covenant promise. And so also for the sake of his name, he promised to act, to redeem and to restore his people. And when the people recognized the truth about God's holiness and the truth about their own sinfulness, then Ezekiel was given a word of grace. It was a word like that given to the prophet Jeremiah, who declared to the same exiled people, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and hope. And so Ezekiel promises Good news to these hopeless people. These dry bones will live. 
And Ezekiel gives us some of the most gospel-soaked words that we find in the whole Old Testament. I like these from Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 24. The Lord says, for I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. And then that passage in chapter 37, the end of chapter 37, the Lord says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. What a hope this is. A hope of security and, and blessing. This perfect shalom, this, this peace in the presence of God. Now, last week we saw that this vision of living under the righteous rule of God in his kingdom would only be possible if the forces of evil in this world were completely and finally defeated. And so in chapters 38, 39, Ezekiel gives us a picture of that, that war to end all wars in which that epitome of evil, Gog of Magog, with his armies was wiped out, eliminating the final threat to the well-being of God's people. And chapter 39 ended this way, uh, verse 29, I will no longer hide my face from my people. You see, the exile was a time when the people experienced the hiddenness of God. And that would be no more. And then it says, I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. The way now is prepared for God to dwell among his people in renewed worship and eternal fellowship. And that is what is presented to us. In visionary form in chapters 40 to 48. And I see this vision that, that Ezekiel has here as the closest thing we get in the whole Old Testament to describing what we might call the future hope of heaven. It's Ezekiel's way of giving us a picture of God dwelling with his people in perfect peace and eternal security. Now, we're going to look at this section in two parts. This morning, we're basically going to consider the first seven chapters, which deal with the description of the temple and all that goes with it. And then next week, the final two chapters, we'll look at the vision of a nation living in a well-ordered peace and harmony in the land. So back to Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning at verse one. In the 25th year of our exile. At the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city. On that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. In visions of God, or perhaps divine visions, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On whose south side were some buildings that, that looked like a city. 
He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. And he said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you. For that is why you've been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. And what does Ezekiel see? Well, in this vision, he's given a guided tour by an angelic messenger of a great temple complex. Now, I say complex because the the temple itself is only a small part of it. Now, we've got a diagram, uh, a diagram here of Ezekiel's vision. This is the outer wall, the outer court. Oops, oops. We're not there yet. Whoops. <laughs> I rarely do PowerPoints, you see. Okay, outer court. Uh, this is the inner wall to the inner court. And this right here, that's the temple itself. Okay? These are the various gates. And this is the east gate where this uh, tour begins. Now, to give you some idea, this uh, these walls are about 200 and... 50 yards on a side. So this whole area would be about six football fields. So so the categories that I would understand. Uh, Now, in this vision, you go to the next slide, Ezekiel's given a guided tour. And so he begins here and he comes here and he goes to the north gate and then he goes to the south gate and then he goes to the south gate of the inner court. Then he goes around looking at the inner court. Here's the altar. He he goes to the temple itself. He doesn't go inside the Holy of Holies, which is this section here. Then he goes back out and around and he ends up back at the east gate. Now, there's several things about this temple diagram that are particularly interesting. The first is the idea of guarded holiness. As you can see, this looks like a fortress, doesn't it? It's got this big wall, which the wall it was 10 feet wide, 10 feet high. It had massive gatehouses, which were manned by Levites. And this wall, we read in 42, verse 20, was to separate the holy from the common. And not only was the holiness expressed in this temple design uh, guarded, it was also graded. And that is that the presence of the holiness of God grows the closer you get to the most holy room. You'll notice here that there are steps up into the outer court, then steps up into the inner court, then steps up into the temple itself. And then as you come into the temple, each entryway becomes narrower and narrower. In a sense, as you move toward the temple, you not only move upwards, uh, up into that holy place, but it becomes narrower and narrower and, and more difficult to get into. You, it, the sacred space is, is guarded and it's graded until you get the most sacred space of all. And then another interesting thing about this temple is it's decorated with palm trees. It gives the appearance of a garden suggestive of the Garden of Eden, where God once dwelt with his people. Well, at the end of this tour in chapter 43, Ezekiel once again has a vision of God. 43, verse 3, the the vision I saw was like the vision I had when he came to destroy the city. Like the visions I'd seen by the Kabar River and I fell face down. 
Now, the last vision of God had come back in chapters 10 and 11. And, and, and Ezekiel had seen the glory of God departing from the temple, leaving through that east gate, then leaving the city. And now he sees a vision of the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east, entering the temple through that same east gate. And the glory of the, the living God fills that temple. In verse 7 of chapter 43, he hears a voice who says to him, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. Here's a picture of the king of the universe who's come to take up residence in his royal palace. Now, of course, the Jews didn't understand this literally. Uh, Solomon had said that when the first temple was dedicated, will God really dwell on earth? The highest, that that, should be the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, O Lord. How much less this temple that I built? Or we read in Isaiah 66, 1, this is what the Lord said. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? You see, God doesn't literally live in a building made by human hands. But the temple, you see, was a visual representation of God's special presence with his people. And then Ezekiel hears these words. Chapter 43, verse 10. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. You see, Ezekiel has seen a... a, magnificent temple in this vision. It's perfect in its symmetry and its design. It's a thing of beauty. It is a fitting dwelling place for their king, the Lord, their God. And the prophet was to go back to the exiles in Babylon uh, who, who'd been so humbled by these, these difficult circumstances. Now, 25 years they'd been in exile with no end in sight. And he was to tell them that this is what their future looks like. This is what the Lord has in store for them. But he's careful to say this future isn't a result of their goodness. It's not something they deserved. And they weren't to congratulate themselves for their achievement. The, the vision is, is a vision of God's grace, which only reminds them of their unworthiness. It, it should stir in them the shame of their spiritual adulteries. And it should lead them to boast not in themselves, but in the mercies of their God. You see, God's blessings must always be an incentive for humility in us, not of pride. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. For you see, this temple still assumes a people who needed sacrifice for their sin. You see, there's still an altar in this temple on which atonement is made. And the description in the three chapters that follow, uh, chapters 44, 45 and 46, pictures the work of the priests and the Levites within the temple. And so we read in, in chapter 43, verse 27, that the priests are to present your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar. Then I will accept you, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, this is a reminder that though this temple is God's dwelling place, he is there so that he might have fellowship with his people. Then I will accept you, he says. This could be translated, then I will welcome you. As one commentator put it, this is the language of love. 
of welcome, of warmth and invitation. This word, this word smiles at us. It greets us with open arms. The altar was a place that actualized that welcome of God. By his grace, you see, God has made a way for sinners to come into his holy presence. So I ask you this morning, what are we to make of this divine vision given to Ezekiel the prophet? What's its purpose? What does it mean to us? And the first question to ask really is, was this description meant to be a plan for the building of a literal temple? And some have thought so. But I don't. For one thing, when the Jews did return to the land and they did rebuild the temple at the end of the 6th century B.C., there's no mention of Ezekiel's vision. Uh, This certainly wasn't the design that they used when they rebuilt the temple. Nor did King Herod use this plan when he radically rebuilt the temple in the time of Jesus. And why should they have used it? Unlike the instructions given to Moses regarding the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness, there's no command in Ezekiel's vision to actually build this structure. It's presented simply as a vision that he was to describe to his fellow Israelites. And when we look at chapter 47, which we will next week, we'll see that this isn't something they could possibly build in any event. But some people argue that it wasn't meant to be built during the present age at all, but it presents a temple that God himself will build in some future age. In the millennium, perhaps, when Christ rules as king on the earth. And certainly that's possible. But there's no mention of any messianic Davidic king in this vision. And this fails, I think, to take into account the new thing that has happened in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. You see, that changes everything. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Suppose I was living in the year 1902. And to express my love for my young son, I promised that one day when he was older, I would give him a beautiful horse and buggy for him to get around him. And he was thrilled with his promise. And and he held on to that hope with great expectation. But suppose when I finally felt the time was right to bestow this gift, gift upon them, it was no longer 1902, but 1932. So I didn't give him a horse and buggy. No, I gave him a brand new Ford automobile instead. Wouldn't that be a fitting fulfillment of my promise? Or think about this. What if for Christmas I promised my young daughter a beautiful stuffed animal? One of those uh, kinds you get at those high end toy stores. And she couldn't wait to to cuddle and, and care for that toy. But on Christmas morning, she found under the Christmas tree not a stuffed animal, but a real Cocker Spaniel puppy instead. Wouldn't that be a fitting fulfillment of my promise? You see, the Lord God gave to Israel and to the Jewish exiles in Babylon a promise. It was a promise in the form of a vision of a future day when his glory would return to Israel and he would make his dwelling with his people in the midst of a glorious temple. But the way he fulfills that promise far exceeds anything that Ezekiel or his countrymen could ever imagine. 
And what this vision is about is really, in a sense, what the whole Bible is about. The realization of the presence of God with his people, with us. Now, some may say, what are you talking about, God's presence? Of course, God is present with us. I mean, God is God, isn't he? And God, by definition, is everywhere. He is omnipresent. That's the theological term, isn't it? How can God not be present with us? Well, that's true as far as it goes. But but that's not what we usually mean when we speak of God's presence. And that's not what the Bible means by it either. In the Bible, you see, the presence of God is a rare thing. In fact, in the Bible, the default condition, the normal state for sinful human beings in this fallen world is the state of absence from God. I mean, you know the story. In the beginning, Adam and Eve enjoyed the perfect presence of God. They they walked with God in the Garden of Eden, but they failed to trust in the goodness of God. They ate the forbidden fruit and their disobedience to God put an end to that communion with God. The Bible says that that the the Lord God banished them from that garden. He drove them out. He locked the gates. He sent them out of the east gate and, and he assigned an armed angelic cherubim to guard that east gate behind them. And death entered the world. And from then on, you see, human beings were cut off from the presence of God. You see, the presence of God in the Bible is not a metaphysical, philosophical concept. No, it is it is relational. It is a personal concept. And to be in God's presence is to know him. It's to live with him. It is even to enjoy his gracious favor. It's the most wonderful thing that a human being can ever enjoy. And that's why the expression, may God be with you. Is a, from which we uh, our goodbye comes from. That's a token of goodwill, because that's what we all want, isn't it? For God to be with us, to know that God himself is for us. And to know something of his love, his grace, his mercy. And you see, that's why hell is described in the Bible as a place where we are completely excluded From God's presence. You see, hell is a final expression of that banishment from the garden. And as such, you see, hell is a place devoid of light and of love and of life forever. It's a place of utter darkness and of eternal loneliness. But the story of the Bible, it's a gospel story. It's a story of good news. It's the story of God's sovereign grace by which he redeems a people for himself, drawing people into a new relationship with himself so that he might live with them and they might live in his presence. And along the way, in the biblical story, the Lord God shows himself to be present at various times and various places to various people as he works out his saving purpose in history. He made himself present to Abraham. When he called him and gave him a promise of blessing, he made himself present to Moses in the burning bush and and then through the exodus and then on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and a trembling mountain when he revealed his law to his servant. And the people of God had experienced God's presence in extraordinary ways, ways unprecedented in the history of the world. But when they sinned, 
in making a golden calf to worship the Lord, threatened to remove his presence from them altogether. And Moses pleads with God in that passage we read earlier. If your presence does not go with us, O Lord, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? You see, the presence of God, it was not some incidental extra, some added power needed for Israel's prospering. The Lord Yahweh wasn't like some star player they needed to help their team excel. No, the presence of God was their one defining feature. Without the presence of God, they could no longer be called the people of God at all. You see, these two were inseparable. And that's why the Lord gave Moses a symbol of his presence. It was a sacred tent. We call it the tabernacle. It moved with Israel as they traveled. And then when the nation finally achieved its rest in the land, Solomon made that tabernacle permanent by building a glorious temple. A glorious temple. And so you see, in the eyes of Ezekiel the priest, that temple was the visible expression of, of the presence of God with his people. That's the category, the language that he and his people understood. It's, in a sense, the horse and buggy. It's the stuffed animal that they so badly wanted. Or as the book of Hebrews in the New Testament puts it, it was the shadow of the good things to come. Ezekiel looked to a glorious future in terms of a temple. The temple that was to be built when the people returned to the land. But that didn't happen. A temple was built, but it didn't have this glory. It didn't have this presence of God at all. But then something happened. Something far more wonderful than even Ezekiel could even comprehend. The word that was God. The word that was with God from the beginning. That word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the presence of God with his people, pictured in this vision of the temple, points us to that even greater experience of the presence of God in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the visible expression of the invisible God. In Christ, Paul writes, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, that deity has come to dwell with us. In fact, Jesus referred to himself as the new temple, that meeting place between God and man. But most people just didn't get it. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, referring to the temple that Herod the king had built. And you're going to raise it up in six days, three days. But John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. You see, Jesus was the supreme demonstration of the presence of God. And the book of Hebrews tells us that in Jesus' death on a cross, we benefit from a sacrifice that achieves infinitely more than the animal sacrifices of the Jerusalem temple could ever achieve. 
Hebrews 10, verse 12. And when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so he writes, we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You see, in Jesus, we have all that the temple signified for Israel. And indeed, all that Ezekiel's vision of restoration implies. God's presence has come near. He has atoned for our sins so that we might be welcomed by him into his presence. Now, there's still much more to come in God's promise to dwell with his people. And we'll talk about that next week. But I want you to see that in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this glorious promise has already begun. Now, how do we know about this present? How do we experience the presence of God? How can we know that he is here with us? I mean, he promised to be with us. Jesus came and he promised to be with us to the end of the age. But Jesus himself isn't here, not not visibly, not bodily. He's ascended to the father. Is God's presence now gone? No, it's not gone. For Jesus promised another like himself. He promised the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit now comes in among us. The Holy Spirit now comes to dwell within us to express the presence of God, the presence of Jesus in the lives of believers. And Paul says this to the Christians of Corinth. He says, first Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple? Of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes into our hearts. He makes his dwelling there. And the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He affirms in our hearts that God loves us, that we belong to him, that he is our father. We are his people. And the Spirit confirms the truth. Of God's word in our hearts. Deep inside we say, yes, it's true. In these, these words that we sing, these words that we pray, these words of scripture that we read, they're really true. And we know that God is great. And God is good. And I know you've, you've, you've tasted of this. In those moments when you sense, yes, God is here. God is with us. I sense his presence. The word that, that keeps coming to my mind, it was one of Jonathan Edwards' favorite words. It is sweet. It is sweet to know the presence of God. And it's the spirit that brings this presence into our midst. And what a precious thing it is. You know, I, I still feel a little apprehensive when occasionally I go home late at night into a dark, empty house. Some of you may know that feeling. But what a comfort it is to approach a house when you know that there is a loving presence there, a person that I know and I love. And so this world, you see, this world can be a, a dark place, cold place, full of threats and perils. Isn't it a comfort to know of a divine presence as you approach the unknown darkness of the future? For he is there 
because he is here. God is with us. We need not fear. What can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks? So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword. And we could add a, a stock market crash or a terrorist attack or a sick child or the death of a husband or a wife. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, through him who promises to be with us. And the spirit makes his presence known. But, you know, the Spirit's work in the Bible is not just individual. It's also corporate. It's experienced in the life of God's people, the life of the church. And you see, just as the temple was to be a kind of material body for God in the world. And just as Jesus Christ was the one man who supremely embodied God. Now we as Christians are the body of Christ. And so in a profound and mysterious way, you see, we corporately as God's people now become that visible and tangible testimony of the presence of God in the world. The church is the body of Christ. It's the new temple. It is indwelt by God himself. And so Paul writes of this in Christ. You, too, he says, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Or in Second Corinthians six, he says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. You recognize those words? And Paul writes in chapter seven, verse one, this promise is for us. And Peter says the same thing. As we read earlier, you like living stones are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, it's not this building. That is God's house. God doesn't live anymore in tents and buildings. It is is the believers who are in it. We are God's household, his temple, in whom he dwells by his spirit. And so just as the temple in the Old Testament was a visible representation of his presence with his people. So in this new covenant age. God has given us a similar token of his presence. You see, it's found at this communion table. Our God, you see, accommodates himself to our weakness to make himself known by these very visible and tangible signs of the bread and the cup. Let these be a token of my presence, he says. Let these assure you that I haven't abandoned you. Take, eat and drink. Commune with me. And by faith, let this meal point to that time when you will see me face to face. If you become a part of that visible and tangible people called the church through that uh, public sign of your faith, which we call baptism. If you're a part of that spiritual temple in which God dwells by his spirit. You see, then this Lord's Supper is for you to receive as a token that God is with us. That he is for us. That he has given his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And that curtain which separates us from that most holy place. It's been torn in two. So that we could enter in. And in a sense. In a sense, 
That Eden is now open to us. Eat and drink. And by the work of the Spirit, taste his sweet presence afresh this morning. May this meal proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Ezekiel's future hope is realized in all its fullness. Let's reflect upon that as we prepare our hearts to come to this table. I invite our servers to come forward. And let's pray.